social change is a really important way to spread the good news. But sometimes, people don't care about the big picture until they know that you care about them individually. I have an idea. I think the best way to really influence people is by taking care of their needs. That one-on-one -on -one impact has lasting effects. I think people who understand who God is, when they can see him in those who serve like him. Isn't service really the gospel in motion? You know, it is, and I like where your head's at. It actually reminds me of someone who loved to serve. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to part three in the Mission Witness series, and I'm glad to see so many people. I was not here last week, and I hope you all had a good time without me. I absolutely did not have a good time without you, okay? I had a great time where I was, but it's nothing like being here in church on Sunday with the church family. So I missed you guys, so I got two weeks worth of notes here that I'm going to deliver here today, all right? So I hope you all are comfortable. No, 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 just joking, just joking, just joking. What we're talking about, just to catch everyone up to speed, is we're doing a series called Mission Witness, which is all about witnessing to the resurrection of Christ. Because if you read the gospel story, what's very, very evident is that when Jesus rose from the dead, his followers, his disciples, as soon as they believed and they realized what had happened, then the instantaneous response was to go and tell others. Even that's what Jesus told the very first witness, believer in the resurrection, was Mary Magdalene. The first thing Jesus told her is, go and tell my brethren. Okay, and then the apostles, when they believed, they went to all the ends of the earth, and they would go and tell everyone, and that's called witnessing, and that's what we're talking about here. The call to witness, as we discussed in week one, is something that if we're believers in the resurrection of Christ, it is our duty, it is incumbent upon us that we must witness to this great news, and we must preach it to the ends of the earth. But what we're talking about in this series is what that preaching should look like, and what that witnessing should look like. And what we said is, is that the what is the same. The what is witness to the resurrection. But the how will look different. And some people will preach by their words. Some people preach by their action. Some people preach by their writings. Some people will go to the ends of the earth. And some people will just preach to the person right in front of them. Some people will preach in ways that their words cut people to the heart. And some people will never say a word, but they leave people speechless. The what of witnessing is all of our duty. But the how is what we're looking at in this series, and we're seeing that that can be unique. Our theme verse here is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, which says, You, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. What we're talking about is how to do the work of an evangelist, and what does that mean? And what we even saw with the original guys is that St. John's evangelism was different than St. Peter's evangelism, different than St. Paul's evangelism, different than St. Mary's evangelism. Do the work of an evangelist, the what, the same. The how, that's what we're trying to figure out. So we're looking at different examples and different methodologies in terms of how to preach. First week, we looked at the first method, which is to speak. And that's kind of the stereotypical one that we all think of, of when it comes to preaching and witnessing, of someone who opens their mouth and proclaims the word of God. And that person that we looked at that week was St. Fotini, a.k.a. the woman at the well in John chapter 4. We looked at the rest of her life after the gospel and how she became what is referred to in the early church writings, an incredible, incredible honor she is given. 
She is called in her icon. Any remember what was her title given? Saint Fotini? Equal to the apostles. That was the title that she was given. So you say, wow, like the apostles, man, those are the big guys. Like those are like, that, that's the top when it comes to Christianity is the apostles. She was given the title equal to the apostles because she went and boldly proclaimed the word of God in Rome and in Carthage and eventually she was martyred. She taught us three lessons. She taught us the number one, you never know the power of one word. You never know the power of one word. A word is just a seed, and you never know that if you drop the right seed at the right time when the soil is just right, you never know the power of just one word. She also taught us that witnessing is contagious because she witnessed to someone who then witnessed to someone who then witnessed to someone, and this line all the way down to where it ends, eventually takes, she gets credit for all that. Okay, because if I preach to someone who preached to someone who preached to someone who preached to someone who becomes the greatest thing since sliced bread, then I get a reward in that because it ultimately comes back to me at the beginning. And the last thing that she taught us is that we speak passionately about what we believe deeply. And oftentimes we say the problem is that we don't have the personality to preach or we're not bold or we don't want whatever it may be. But the truth of the matter is when we're passionate about something, we preach it boldly. So maybe the problem isn't our personality. Maybe the problem is what we truly believe about the resurrection and its role in our life. I just met someone a minute ago right here who said they're visiting from Cleveland. And the first thing that came out, hi, my name is Father Anthony. Our wizards are going to beat your Cavaliers in the next round. Like that's instantaneous thing because I believe it so passionately that my basketball team is better than their basketball team. All right. So it just, it wasn't a plan. It wasn't like a, it was just when something we're passionate about, it comes out instantaneously. Hopefully prophetically too, we'll see, and hopefully in a couple weeks. Last week, we looked at the second methodology. We looked at mission or preaching done by change, social change, change the world. And we looked at a, a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, okay, a German back in the, during the time of Nazi Germany who fought against the Nazi regime and stood up for what was right. And what we hopefully came to the realization last week was just a, a, a teaser into it, but hopefully you realize that the majority of the people the activists out there, the people who change the world, the majority of them, if you go back and trace it, there's Christian roots underneath it. Greatest activists in our, in our country, okay, and all of us know the standard, the, 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 the gold standard for activism is, is Martin Luther King. I'm sorry, not Martin Luther King. Reverend Martin Luther King. And somehow we forget that. And somehow people who are against the church, before Martin Luther, you can't be pro-Martin Luther King and against the church because Martin Luther King was pastor of a church. And the reason why change and fighting for change in the world is a part of Christian witness has nothing to do with social, has nothing to do with political. These are theological issues. And there's a theological issue at the root of any true activist, which is that man or woman, any human being, is created in the image of God. So a human being created in the image of God, it's not about your political agenda. It's not about social justice. It's not about none of that stuff. It's a theological matter that this person in front of me right now who's being discriminated against is the image bearer of God. And because they bear the image of God inside them, they are due the dignity of every single... No one's life is different than anyone else's life because everyone's life, whether rich or poor, whether black or white, whether uh, sick or healthy, is equal because it is the image and likeness of God. Said another way, we're like firemen. A fireman doesn't show up to the burning building and they say there's someone inside and he says, well, is he rich or is he poor? Did he vote Democrat or Republican? Is he uh, famous or not famous? A fireman shows up, any life inside the building, I'm going in and I'm saving it. I don't care what the life is. I don't care if it's a 90-year-old or a 9-year-old. I don't care how he voted. I don't care. A life is a life. 
And we as Christians, this is why we fight for equality. So whether you're talking about fighting uh, women's equality and women uh, the same as men, whether you're talking about ending slavery, civil rights, whether you're talking about fighting for lives of kids who aren't even born yet. These are not political issues. These are not social issues. Every human being, image and likeness of God, we fight for their life because this is how we witness to the truth that we were made in the image and likeness of God. We saw last week, as Steve said so eloquently from Bonhoeffer, that silence in the face of evil is evil. And to not speak is to speak. And to not act is to act. Those are our first two. Speak and change. Today we're going to shift gears. And if you are not so much into the speaking and the change you're going to like today. Because the first two, certain personalities like the first two more than the other. If you're a fighter, you like the first two. Confrontational, yeah, fight and stick it to those bad guys and speak and bold and proclaim. But what if you're like a nice person? What if you're not the most confrontational person and you kind of get anxiety when you think about speaking publicly and changing and you kind of get kind of these things aren't, aren't your cup of tea? Well, you will enjoy the third method much more. We're talking about today is serving. And if last week was the Martin Luther King week, today will be the Mother Teresa week. We're not going to talk about Mother Teresa. We'll talk about someone else, okay? But same concept of someone who gave their life to serve those in need and had an incredible impact in witnessing for the gospel through just simply never preaching, but simply serving those who are in need. We're going to talk about a man named George Mueller, or George Muller, as some people call him. Anyone who knows who George Mueller is? How many people have heard of him? Just a handful of people. Okay. So George Mueller was a German who lived in the 19th century, so the 1800s, born in Germany and raised in Germany, but he did most of his work in England, and he is very, very well known over there in England. George Mueller, his title, there was a documentary done on him, which we're going to see some clips from it. The title of the documentary was The Robber of the Cruel Streets, because what George Mueller was known for more than anything else was he helped establish orphanages that ended up serving more than 120,000 orphans. That's right. That's not a typo. 120,000 orphans, poorest of the poor, with no parents, and he helped provide care for them at a time when there was no care for him. There's a documentary done on George Mueller, and we're going to see some clips from it. Okay, so we're going to see four or five clips, or each one's about a minute or a minute and a half, something like that, because I think it'll help tell the story, not better than me, but in addition to me, help compliment us here. So here's our first one, introductions. Street kids aren't new. They've always been around. Nowadays, society tries to help them. But 200 years ago in England, they were treated like vermin. With no parents or relatives to look after them, orphans were forced to survive by begging or stealing. They had no one to turn to. They lived and died in the gutter. Oi, you! But in Bristol, help was on its way from someone a national newspaper would later proclaim had robbed the cruel streets of thousands of victims. Oh, 
All right, let's go some quick facts on George Mueller's life, and then we'll get into the lessons we're going to learn from him. George Mueller was born in 1805, and in his own bi autobiography, he describes his lifestyle growing up as, sorry for the term, he was a playboy, okay, which meant he spent a lot of time drinking, a lot of time gambling, and a lot of time with the ladies. That's in his own words, not mine. And this is from a very young age. In fact, at age 14, 14, his mother died suddenly from a disease or from like a something all of a sudden. He didn't know about it for two days. Why? Because he was out drinking with his friends for two days. His own mom had died and he didn't know. This lifestyle that he lived required a lot of money, which he didn't have any of it. But by a young age, he figured out a way to get some money. By age 10, in his own words, he was stealing from his father, his hardworking dad, middle-class dad. He would steal money from him to support his lifestyle. By age 14, he was a professional con man. He would go to expensive hotels, talk about his dad, which is none of that stuff was true, and say the money is coming. Then he would sneak out. He would go to expensive restaurants, do the same thing. Eventually, it caught up to him at age 16 when he did this act, when he did the, stayed at the nice hotel, ate at the nice restaurant, and then he didn't have any money to pay. He got thrown in prison for five weeks. But those five weeks in prison did not change him at all. His father bailed him out, and his father brought him back home. His father wanted him to go to seminary. And his father was pushing him to go there, not to serve God. Unfortunately, back then, seminaries weren't about serving God. Clergy wasn't about serve God, but it was about an easy lifestyle. And if you could make it, then you had a pretty cush job. Back then, that is, okay? You had a cush job with good benefits, and you pretty much job security. So his dad was pushing him to go there. He wasn't into the God thing at all, but he went because his dad basically forced him to go. And he enrolled at a university called Hale, H-A-L-L-E. But even in seminary, George found his way to the kids who were messing around, and he continued the same lifestyle, the drinking and the girls and whatever. But even while he was doing all the wrong stuff on the outside, God was working, as he always does, God was working on the inside. And in George's own autobiography, he writes that he was not happy during this time. He writes, quote, Deep in my heart, I longed to renounce this wretched life. I did not enjoy it, and I had sense enough to see that one day it would ruin me completely. That's what he wrote. Sometimes, you know what, that's all it takes for God to do his thing. And most of us, unfortunately, we don't come back to God because we see the light. We come back to God because we feel the heat. And that's what George was doing right here. He ends up finding, in divine providence, one of his former classmates back from, from the city he grew up in. And the classmate's name was Beta, okay, B-E-T-A, which I think is like German for Peter, like Peter, okay, is the kind of thing how it's pronounced, okay. Beta, I'll call him with the American accent so it don't make me funny. Beta was the opposite of George. He was very serious. He was very spiritual. He was very studious. So George had this inkling of like, this life is going to kill me. This guy's going to be a good influence on me. So I want to try to be friends with him. And he wrote the following. He wrote, it appeared now wise for me to choose him as my friend, thinking that better companions would help me improve my conduct. So George was reaching out to try to live a good life. The irony of it all is Beta was very welcoming towards a friendship with George, but not for the reason that you think. Beta was trying to sow his wild oats and have a good time while he was in school. So Beta said, this is the party boy right here. Like, I'm going to be friends with him. So they had exact opposite ideas, but God works in mysterious ways. In the beginning, George was winning, or I'm sorry, Beta was getting what he wanted as George influenced him and he's taking road trip and do all kinds of funny stuff. But things changed. God was working. Things change in 1825 in November. Beta used to attend a weekly Bible study at the home of a Christian family close by. Beta would go every week. 
And George would see him go every week. And George, like I said, was not happy on the inside. And George said, I want to come with you to this Bible study. Beta said, no. Because I didn't want to bring this party boy into my spiritual friends. George insisted. Beta resisted. George eventually convinced him. We'll see what that looks like. Clip number two. One night, Muller asked if he could go with him. Beta at first refused. Muller was still very much the playboy. But inside, he felt empty and miserable. Beta reluctantly took him along. He was sure he'd hate it. What on earth would he make of the praying, the singing, the Bible reading, and then the reading of a sermon? George Muller, welcome here. Please have a seat. Friends, we have a guest tonight here at our Bible study, a friend of Beta. George Muller is a student at the university here in Halle, and he's training for the ministry, I believe. May I suggest that we continue our Bible studies from last week and turn to 1 John 4. And I will read from verse 7 on, and if somebody else then could, could continue from verse 13. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. Muller loved it. It was so completely different from the harsh, legalistic and heavy religion he'd been brought up in. These people obviously had something he had never experienced, something which he now realized he'd been longing for all his life. For the first time, he was really happy. This is what I have been longing for. All our worldly pleasures are as nothing compared to this. It was a turning point in Muller's life. He now knew for the very first time the joy and relief of being forgiven and what it meant to really trust in Christ. He was on the threshold of a brand new life and little did he know where it would lead. Goes to this Bible study, hears the word preach, and has his Samaritan woman, woman at the well moment. He walked in one way and walked out a completely different way. His life was completely changed, all new priorities. All of a sudden, he don't want to party. He don't want to do any of that stuff. All he wants to do is read the Bible. And the guy dedicated, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, so much time to stay studying the word of God. The other thing he wanted to do is he wanted to preach what he was reading about. And that meant he no longer wanted to be a clergyman. I know it sounds strange, but because he wanted to preach, he had to leave the seminary because mission and clergy at the time was completely different things. His dad was not happy about that. And his dad was trying to convince him to stay in the seminary. George said, you know what? I appreciate all that you've done for me, but I'm not going to stay in the seminary. So he basically said, dad, I not cut you off in a bad way, but basically I'm not going to take any more money from you. Okay, because I don't want you to support something that you're not agreeing with. So he stopped all financial, receiving all money from his dad. What would he do? He would trust God to provide. And God did provide as he was hired by some people to teach them. Four Americans was asked them to teach him German. So he did that. Here's an important part of the story, which we'll come back to later. Is there was a man named A.H. Frank who owned a house where he invited orphans to stay. He invited George, seeing that he had nowhere to stay, he invited George to stay inside this house, and a little seed was planted inside George when he had nothing, no place to stay, and he stayed with this man. 
fast forward the story right now. George doesn't care about job, doesn't care about anything, wants to trust God, read the Bible, and go to the ends of the earth to preach. He signs up to be a missionary in a place called Bucharest. And as soon as he's about to go, about to get on the plane, war breaks out. The week before he goes and he has to cancel that trip, he's crushed. He gets a call from a group in England. He's in Germany at the time. He gets a group in England who says, we're looking for someone, a mission group, to come and preach to the Jews here in England. He says, I'll take it. He goes over to England. He studies Hebrew. And in a matter of less than two years, he teaches himself fluent Hebrew. But in the process of doing that, he worked himself to exhaustion, got himself sick, and he had to stop doing the job with the mission to the Jews. They sent him to this place called Tinmouth, which is over on the coast, like a relaxing place, like a Myrtle Beach kind of a place for us today. And there, he gets a little bit of rest. And during that time, he meets a man named Henry Crake. And Henry Crake and this man, George Mueller, become like soulmates for life. And their life is centered around one thing. They read the scriptures and they take it at face value. The thing especially that both Henry and George loved is the idea of trusting God fully. It says that God provides for our needs. We're going to trust God fully. And Henry and George decided from that moment in time, they don't want any salary from anyone. They just want to preach the word of God and they want to be free to do so and God will provide. George loved it. Henry loved it. George's mission people, his mission board did not like it. And they agreed with George that they can no longer do this. So George is now on his own. George finds a local church in that city, in that Myrtle Beach place. And that church has 18 people and they're looking for a pastor. They can't afford a pastor. Perfect for George because he doesn't want to be on salary. He agrees to be their pastor on one condition. As long as he's free to travel wherever the Holy Spirit leads him to preach the gospel. They agree. He agrees. Never going to need any money. Never takes any salary. This becomes exponentially harder when George now gets married. And now all of a sudden he has a wife, but his wife is on board as well. And he and his wife agree, we don't want any salary. We just trust in God. We take God and his word. George writes the following in his autobiography about him and his wife. Her name is Mary. This has been a great means of letting us see the tender love and care of God over his children. Even in the most minute things, in a way we'd never experienced before, it has made the Lord more fully known to us as a prayer hearing God. Let me reset the story right now before we get into the good stuff. Here you have George, playboy, thief, con, otters, con artist, turned into this saintly man. Turned into, I don't want to have an easy job. I want to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. All I want to do is read my Bible and preach it. I was a con man. Now I am sold everything I have and give to the poor. I was, you know, looking for an easy job or a way to just get as much money. Now I'm saying I don't want anyone money for anything in the whole wide world. And now he's pastoring a church and getting no money for it. Give him a grade, a spiritual grade. What would you put on his spiritual report card? Where would you rank him? Amongst all of us right here, 250, 300 people sitting right here. Give him a grade. What percentile is he in amongst all of us right now? All that he did and all that there. Top 50%? Would you say he's in the top 50%? Say top 20%? Oh, Y'all are very spiritual people, okay? He's not up at your level, I see, okay? He's an A+. He's an A+. Like he's already done more than all the rest of us combined. He's already living for no salary. I preach the gospel. I get a salary. Comes on the 1st and 15th of every month. He's done more than the rest of us. So all of us would say, great job. Like someone write this guy's story down. He's a great. But for George, he wasn't satisfied. There was still annoying inside him. To do what? To witness to the gospel. To preach the gospel. He ends up in a city called Bristol, okay, which is more of a big city town with his friend Henry Craig. And this is where his life really changes, and he discovers what he, God put him on this earth for. 
next video clip. The cold, damp and unsanitary conditions of pre-Victorian Britain meant children were highly vulnerable to diseases such as pneumonia, tuberculosis and cholera. With no antibiotics or penicillin, they nearly always died. For the poor, life was especially harsh, not just because of the physical conditions, but also because of society's attitude, in particular, its attitude towards street children. When Muller arrived in Bristol, he could not help but be moved by the plight of these orphan children. They were always coming to his front door. There was nowhere for them to go, and no one to look after them. So they lived on the streets, begging and stealing to stay alive. George gets to the city called Bristol, and he sees these street kids, and all of a sudden, the tugging inside him is made perfectly clear. He sees these children like the, the movie tried to describe. It goes into more detail, but we don't need to get into all of that. Life for these children was very difficult because there was no answer to take care of them. There was no orphanages at the time. Okay? There were only very few orphanages in all of England, and they were all in London. All right? And they were all for, they required fees. That's the way orphanages were back then. You had to pay to get in, which makes sense because they were providing a service. And they were usually only for like middle class and above professional like families. So there was nothing for the poorest of the poor. And George sees that, and George says, I have to do something about it. Just as a historical side note, anyone ever read the book Oliver Twist? Remember when they made us read that? That's during this time. Okay, Charles Dickens wrote Oliver Twist about something called workhouses, which was basically what life was like in England at this time, where they took the street kids, and their solution was to put them in these awful places called workhouses, where they were treated in the most horrible ways. Okay, one, one thing that's written about it right here, this is a quote from, from a, a historical document about workhouses. It says, they were hellish places, often run by heartless money-grabbing owners, and there was no escape. Young children became prisoners, forced to cohabit with mentally ill and violent adults. Few people knew about the atrocities they endured. Again, right now, I'm not talking about social issue. I'm talking about a theological issue. That are these children, image bearers of God? Yes. Do these children have the right to a dignified life? Yes. So therefore, as a witness to the resurrection of Christ, as a child of God myself, it's not a matter of social or political. It's a theological matter. And George felt that when he was reading his Bible the next day. Watch this. Today, it is very much on my heart to no longer think about starting an orphan house, but to actually do it. And I have been very much in prayer about it. In just a few days, the Lord has answered my prayers and given me 50 pounds. I had asked for only 40. This has been a great encouragement to me and has stirred me up even more to pray about an orphan house. Again, yesterday and today, I have been much in prayer about the orphan house and am more convinced that it is of God. May he in his mercy guide me. George prays, George decides, I'm going to open an orphan house. And in the first year, in one year, George, without any salary, any income, any anything, George in one year opens three orphan houses that house more than 90 orphans. In one year, 90 orphans off the street. And we're not going to get into the detail right now because you can read about that on your own. 
But here's the kicker. Okay, then we'll get to the lessons. The kicker was George's mission was actually not just to help kids on the street. George had an ulterior motive. And every witness has an ulterior motive as well. George's true motive was to show people the love of God. Because at the time, England at the time, just like not too different than today, society was very cynical. Society was very much skeptical of God because they lived in poor conditions. And there was epidemics and there was plagues and there was sickness and there was poverty and there was homelessness and there was all kinds of injustice around. So basically society looked around and said, you Christians speak about a loving God, but where is he? You Christians speak about a God who cares, but where is he? And George, this made George's blood boil, as anyone hopefully makes our blood boil as well. So George said that what I need to do is show England and show the world that the God of miracles still lives. The God of love still lives. The God who has a plan for every single person who makes all things work together for good to those who love God is still alive. The God who cares about the widow, the orphan, the traveler, and the stranger is alive, and he is active, and he is working. And George set out on a mission to do just that. Last video that I'll show you right here, and then I'll get into our lessons. Now if I, a poor man, can set up and run an orphan house without asking anyone for money or supplies, and to do it simply by prayer and faith, that would be something which, with the Lord's blessing, could encourage and strengthen the faith of the children of God. It would also be a powerful witness to the unconverted of the reality of God. By the end of his life, okay, by the time he had died, like I said, he had opened up not just orphan houses, but an orphan village. It ended up being like an entire campus of houses that, that housed at one time, at one time, up to 2,000 orphans were in this home. And over the grand total of his life, more than 120,000 of the poorest of the poor kids were taken care of and given education, spiritual as well as, as worldly education, through the work of George Mueller. This is a picture of his funeral. At age 93, when he died, the entire city shut down. Businesses closed, factories closed. Of this German immigrant, who nobody knew his name when he showed up, by the end of his life, had made such a statement on society that let me show you two of the local newspapers, what they wrote about him. These are not Christian newspapers. One called the Daily Telegraph wrote, George had robbed the cruel streets of thousands of victims, the jails of thousands of felons, and the workhorses and the workhouses of thousands of helpless waifs. That's a powerful witness. This one's even better. The Bristol Times wrote, George, he was raised up for the purpose of showing that the age of miracles is not past and rebuking the skeptical tendencies of the time. Someone who never preached a sermon out in the community. Someone who never stood on a corner and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Someone who never fought the work, like when he saw the situation in the workhouse, he never lobbied in Congress or Parliament or whatever they have over there. He never signed a petition or to ask people. He didn't do any of that stuff. All he did was he rolled up his sleeves and he helped the person in front of him and he served. And he bore a great witness, not just to the children that he served, but to the entire community. Three lessons that we're going to learn from George Mueller's life, and I'm going to go through these quickly. Number one, okay, and this one isn't so much about service, but I can't leave his life without talking about the power of God being unleashed through reading and living the Bible. George Mueller shows more than anybody else the power of God unleashed through reading and living the Bible. Why? I told you earlier, that George Mueller didn't take any salary. So he did. He worked his entire life without taking a salary. Okay, that's good. 
Not only didn't take a salary and he worked and lived his whole life, he provided for all these orphans without ever having anyone, ever, anyone asking a penny from a single person. George made a commitment that he would never ask for any donations from anyone. He would only make his requests known to God. It's an incredible thought that a man who never asked for a penny, every time he needed, God provided. Sometimes it would be like there'd be no food in front of the children, and then a, a car would break down in front of the building, and it would be a baker's car. Okay, and he said, the, the bread here is going to go bad if I don't get rid of it. Y'all take all the bread. And sometimes it would be someone would wake up in the middle of the night, and they'd have a dream to go give George money. George never, ever requested anyone to give him money, and he ended up providing all this for the orphans. How much money did George Mueller raise in his life? Anyone want to guess? How much money does someone who never asked for a penny raise in his life? Ready? $2.5 million. Without ever asking a penny. Without ever doing a fundraising campaign. And how much is $2.5 million in today's money? $180 million was raised without ever asking for a penny. What's the secret of his power? The secret of power is the Bible. George Mueller would read the Bible for hours every single day. Hours. George Mueller read the Bible more than 200 times in his life, cover to cover. 200 times. He lived to be 93. So that means at a minimum, at a minimum, he was reading the Bible twice per year. And he didn't start at an infant age. We already agreed that he didn't even become converted until he was 14, 15, 16, and probably, even, I'm sorry, even 20, something like that. But at a minimum, let's say from the minute he woke up out the womb, he came out and he started Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God made it. And he started until the last day he died. He was reading. He would read the Bible more than two times every single year. And it wasn't just he was reading it. He lived it. He read, ask and you shall receive. And he asked. And he received. He read that all things work together for good to those who love God. And even in his darkest moments, he trusted that God would never leave him. There was one particular verse that George, that touched George's life so much. It was Psalm 81.10, which I just discovered. It's a great verse. It says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Watch this. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. And George Mueller not only read that verse, he believed that verse, he lived that verse. And that's why he experienced great power. We, unfortunately, I don't know if we say the same for ourselves. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If I asked you how many people believe this, all of us would raise our hand. If I asked you how many people live this, none of us would raise our hand. And this is why our lives are weak. Because we don't take God at his own word. Let me tell you a true statistic. 80% of people in the United States of America believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. 80% of the people. What percentage of people read the Bible on a regular basis? Nine. 80% say this is the word of God. What percentage read it on a regular basis? Nine. What does that say about us? Oh, and by the way, of the nine, of the nine who read it regularly, 50% of the nine, their regular reading is in, in the church. 50% of those people don't read it in, outside their homes. In their homes, I'm sorry. What does that say about us? What if I told you 50% of people believed, or I'm sorry, 80% of people believed that exercise is good for you? Okay, how many people exercise? 9%. So I said, 80% of the people here say, exercise is very, very important. How many people exercise? 9%. But I tell you, 80% of the people in this room believe that walking on the sidewalk is safer than walking in the street. Okay, how many people walk on the sidewalk? 9%. 
Do you laugh? But don't we do that with the scripture? And I'm just giving you statistics from the people outside the church. Do you want to do statistics for inside the church? Of how many of us believe in the word of God? How many of us tell people the word of God? How many of us kiss the word of God and shine the word of God? We have the word of God, the apps all around. And did you open it this week? Well, this week was a busy week. This month, busy month. Year, tough year so far. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. George Mueller lived this, and we should start as well. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Don't be surprised that if you are part of the 80% who believes in the nine, but not the 9% who's actually doing, don't be surprised if your life is weak, if there's no Bible in your life. Don't be surprised. And then say, how do I know the will of God? And how do I know what God wants me to do? And my life is dry. And, 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 and. You know the answer, and it's sitting right in front of you. And George Mueller shows us the power of that. Lesson number two from George Mueller. And this gets more into the service. I cannot be comfortable knowing that my brother is not. I cannot. This is not political. This is not social. This is none of that stuff. This is theological. I cannot be comfortable knowing that my brother or sister is not comfortable. When George approached people in his church about starting an orphanage, what he said in the sermon that he preached to his church was that we can no longer continue to pass by on the other side. And he was referencing a story in the New Testament, the story in Luke chapter 10 of the Good Samaritan, where you had a priest and a Levite who saw their brother in need and they passed by on the other side. And he said, we as a society, we as a church, we as children of God, we can no longer continue to pass by on the other side, look at them and say, thank God it's not me. We cannot do that and be children of God. We cannot be comfortable knowing that our brother, our sister is not comfortable. What if, what if they're black and I'm white? Doesn't matter. What if they're rich and I'm poor? Or what if they're poor and I'm rich? Doesn't matter. What if they're low class and I'm high class? Doesn't matter. What if they're male and I'm female? Doesn't matter. Are the image of God? Do they have inside them something called the image of God? And if they are, that's all that matters. The difference between society and Christianity. Society believes in ascribed value. Your value is given to you by society, especially back in those days, but it's today too, but a different way. So if you are rich, you have this value. If you're poor, you have this value. If you're a certain color, you have this value. If you're a certain color, you have this value. If you're this class or if you're this class, if you're male or if you're female, if your parents are this or your parents are that, society believes in ascribed value. Christianity believes in intrinsic value. That regardless of anyone's fame or stature or whatever it may be, they have intrinsic value because they are children of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how in the world can he love God whom he has not seen? This commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Did you know that the closest you will get to touching God, to touching God, the closest you will get to touching God is not in your Bible, but with your brother. And every time that your brother's in front of you in need, you have a chance to touch God. You also have a chance to ignore God. And Jesus spoke about that when he spoke about you know, the least of these brethren. Imagine that you love someone, okay? Imagine there's someone that you love, wife, brother, sister, mother, friend, whatever it may be, someone that you love, 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 love so much, and you are far away from that person. So you cannot see that person on a day-to-day -day basis before FaceTime and Skype and all that kinds of stuff. 
But you have a picture of that person. And every day you look at that picture. You love that picture. And you hug the picture. You may even kiss the picture if that's your thing. Like whatever works for you. You love that picture of that person. And then someone comes up, takes the picture, spits on it, and crumples it and throws it down. How do you feel? Are you okay with that? No. But why? They didn't touch the person. Like, did they actually hurt the person? No. But you're not okay with that. Why? You're not okay with that. You know you're not okay with it. You may not know why you're not okay with it, but you're not okay with it. Because you love that person. And that's the only image you have of that person. Well, you know what? Every person that's in front of you that you walk by on the other side is the image of the invisible. God is spirit. Okay, God is spirit. The image of God is spirit is right there. It's right there. It's right there. It's right there. It's right there. Is that person there? Is that person there? Every single person right here that you walk by and you may and society and spits on and puts, that's the image of God. We have no right. We have no right to crumple that up. Let me give you a verse. Not a verse, a quote from one, uh, one of the greatest church fathers, St. John Chrysostom. Watch this one. If you cannot find Christ in the beggar at the church door, you will not find him in the chalice either. Chalice meaning communion, meaning the Eucharist. And I'm going to adapt that slightly. If you cannot see Christ in the person sitting next to you right now, you will never see him here at the table. If you cannot see Christ and your brother and sister sitting next to you right now, then you will never see Christ at the table or in the scriptures because that's where Christ is first and foremost. Does that mean that we all have to quit our jobs and go serve the poor in India, like Mother Teresa? We all have to go to Africa. We all have to lobby. No, I'm not saying that. For some people, it may mean that. Okay, but that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is not that my life needs to stop today, but what I need to do is I need to care. Not even do anything. Just I need to care. I'm not saying I need to help. I'm just saying I need to care. I need to care about the person in front of me. I need to care about my neighbor who's had as a sick daughter. I just need to care. I'm not saying I need to, to, to provide for their. I just need to care. I need to care about my coworker who's struggling in his marriage. I need to care. I need to care about the member of my church community who's lost their job. I need to care. But if I don't care, and I'm okay being comfortable while you being uncomfortable, then it says something about my theology. It says something about my relationship with God. That's not acceptable. I cannot be comfortable knowing that my brother is not. Last lesson. Last lesson. The first lesson was power of God is unleashed. How? Through Reading and living the Bible. Lesson number two is I cannot be comfortable. My brother is not comfortable. Lesson three, one that we all know, is that my actions can say things that my words cannot. My actions can say things that my words cannot. George Mueller never preached. Well, I mean, he did preach to his church, but I'm saying he wasn't an evangelist in the sense that he was preaching the gospel on the corner of the street. But George Mueller, like Mother Teresa, spoke much louder with her actions than anything she could have possibly said or he said by his words. Let's imagine that Jesus came to this earth and preached the gospel of love and salvation in words only. And he stood up and said, you know what, guys? I really love you. I love you so much. I love you so, so, so much. You're so precious to me. You're so valuable to me. Nothing is more valuable than you. And he said the greatest sermon in the world, and he walked off the stage. Would it be the same? What Jesus' actions said was greater than anything his words said. Actually, his words, he never said that you're the most valuable thing to me in the whole wide world. But his actions on the cross, when he went up on the cross and shed his own blood, spoke much louder than his words ever could have. 
James says it this way in James chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed, and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Basically saying you see someone who's in need of a sandwich, and you say, I'll pray for you. And you shine them on the head there. Good boy. Say, what's the benefit of that? Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. We know God loves us, not because of the words that he said, but because of the actions that he took. Even if, even if Jesus had said the fanciest words in the whole wide world, we already agree we don't read the Bible, so we wouldn't even know it. What makes us know that God loves us, that God is active, that God is working, that God cares, that God is alive, is when we see him working. When we see him up on the cross. We see his action that he took. And we saw that he gave us exactly what we needed. My little children, 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I got two things that run through my mind when it comes to this message. Two things that Jesus did say, which if I put these two things, I find myself in trouble. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. So Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus also said, when he's speaking to the Father, as you sent me, I also send them. So I'm putting these two things together. Number one says, I did not come to be served. I came to serve. I was sent to serve. And the second thing is, as you sent me, I also send them. So when I add those two statements together, I can't escape. That as a Christian, it is my duty to live a life of service. And I cannot escape around it. And you know what? Watch this. Forget about duty right now. Do you want to know the number one problem, the epidemic of our time today? more than any other era in the history of the world. It's been a problem since the beginning of the world, but I guarantee you, any sin that you have, I promise you, the root of it comes from this one thing. You know what it is? Selfishness. We are selfish. We are self-centered. We are self-focused. The world revolves around us. From the minute I wake up to the minute I go to bed, my life is, revolves around me and doing what makes me comfortable, what makes me happy, and if anybody gets in my way, we are selfish, and the solution, the antidote to selfishness, is a life of service. And what we as children of God need to be, we need to learn, again, we may not go to the extreme that George Mueller did, but we need to be people who it's not about my agenda. It's not about my agenda. It's about what I can do, I can offer myself for the sake of, number one, God, and witnessing to his majesty and his beauty and his love and his care, and that he is alive and he hasn't forgotten any of the least of these. And then number two, for the people who are made in the image of God, the least of these, the rich or the poor, the tall or the short, the high class or the low class, the famous or the not famous, witness by loving and serving them unselfishly. Last verse, Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. What that means for you, I don't know. Some of you may quit your job and start an orphanage. Actually, we don't have one. Some of you may go foster care. You may say, you know what? Foster care. I feel like God is calling me, and I want to do my best. I can't be George Mueller, but I can foster a child. I can adopt a child in need who is an orphan. I can't start an orphanage, but I can adopt someone who's in need. Some of you may say, you know what? I may not be able to solve the problem of homelessness, but me and a group, we can get together, we can do the love your city thing, and we can be committed to that, and we can help just one homeless person or two homeless people. And some of you may say, you know what? I'm never going to do orphans. I'm never going to do homeless. But you know what? I'm going to have a servant. I'm going to have a you first 
servant mindset, a you first mindset. And every single person I see, you know, sometimes a servant mindset is just a hug when you don't feel like giving a hug. It's just a phone call when you don't feel like talking on the phone. It's just a cup of cold water on a hot sunny day when there's only one cup and there's two thirsty people. I will say you define service by this. When there's two Oreos and three people, that's where you know what a true servant is. And sometimes simply, that's what it takes. That's the mindset that Jesus had for us. It's a mindset that he's calling us to have as well. When we do that, I promise you, that cynical, apathetic, complacent, skeptical world outside will not be the same. When we, the children of God, rise up with the exact opposite. We read our Bible, live our Bible, and live in the power of that. We will not be okay if our brother is uncomfortable, no matter how much we don't we'll not be okay with that. And number two, we will seek to find ways to speak with our actions, not just our words. Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son into this world, not to tell us that you love us, but to show us that you love us. By sending your Son and teaching us this servant mindset, humbled himself and made himself of no reputation for our sake. Pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be okay with being comfortable when others are not. Move inside our hearts, Lord, and, and, and direct us in the way that you want us to apply this message be it to travel across the ends of the earth or just to walk across the room. Whatever it is that you want us, Lord, it's you first and us way, way, way after that, Lord. Not even us second. It's you first, others second, and us way down at the bottom of the barrel. That's how we want to live our lives. We ask these things in the name of your Son, the prayers of all of your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. <laughs>